This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. We are live once again. Hello, hello, hello. How's everyone doing today? Again, I know I'm beginning to... So podcasting is a very, very odd uh, thing to be doing. I don't know if any of you guys have a podcast or listen to podcasts on the regular, but other than mine, of course. But podcasting is a very bizarre world to be in because it's like you're, you're by yourself in most cases. And you know, with me, it's like in Boston, this is where I'm podcasting from. Um, it's very lonely here. I, I think, you know, if any other Boston people are listening and they want to chime in with how it's not lonely up here, but I think it's very lonely up here because, you know, we're still relatively locked down. They actually just expanded our, um, what is it? Our, our curfew from like, it, like last call for drinks at places was like eight 30 and they're getting crushed out here. So they're like, yeah, we're going to move it out to like one o'clock. So now it's starting to normalize out here because cases are dropping pretty dramatically, which is, which is amazing. So it's, it's very, very, it's a marvel of you know, scientific innovation with the vaccine and people, you know, doing the right thing and healthcare workers out in the front lines and the distribution of the vaccine, the capacity of the vaccine, everything else. So, um, but you know, I'm just, again, I, I sit here in my bedroom closet where I have my de facto office that I work from and I have all this other stuff in here. So I just kind of am here basically talking to myself and pretending that you guys are like two feet away from me or six feet in the COVID world away from me is a comfort when, you know, I'm just sitting here again, just kind of talking to myself throughout this whole thing. So thank you guys for that. But, um, I am coming to you live, uh, February 20th. It is around, uh, 1:30 in the afternoon and we are, you know, it's, I think this is episode eight. So we're almost like two months into this thing and it's been, it's been a pretty cool experience so far. And, you know, we've done, you know, some of my throwback blog posts and converted them into podcasts and some new things that we've done um, you know, deeper depths on. And I'm really excited about this week's because I think it's my best post that I've written so far this year. And we really, it's been a while since I've really kind of written abstractly about things that isn't really related to like a, a concept or something like I'm kind of ditching the, uh, the current events logo this week and try to do more of the, you know, philosophy, not really philosophy per se, but like emotions, values, like my typical stuff that I like to talk about when I'm on here. So I wanted to get into this week by kind of, you know, relating to a very personal experience. So let's, let's get into it. So, um, a lot of people say that traumatic experiences have an outsized effect on how you see the world. And I think a lot of people would also agree that these, a lot of these traumatic events happen in airports and the airport, you know, to give it first credit before we shred it, like we like to do on this place, we like to tell the good things before we tell it the bad things sometimes. So the airport is in, in aggregate, a very wonderful place. It's a remarkable innovation of both human ingenuity, patience, and technology that a place where we can zip from point A to point B within hours actually exists. And according to Elon Musk, who was on Joe Rogan, I think either last week or the two, I think two weeks ago, something like that, uh, galactic travel is only about 20 to 30 years away. And he said, you know, he's got you know, plans for the SpaceX shit to go up in the next, you know, decade or so, which is crazy. But until he shatters the paradigm, we're going to stick to our earthly travels being pretty remarkable in their own right, which I think they are. Even during COVID, it's amazing that we're able to still, you know, travel as much as we can. And it's been really hard for these companies. But anyway, so however, airports can perhaps also be one of the most frustratingly awful places on the planet as well, because human beings were meant to be social creatures. And we found that out the hard way throughout this past year. But airports tend to push these boundaries just a little close together for a lot of people's comfort. And with itineraries and schedules finely tuned, going into our transportation system from hell, people's patience and other good emotions tend to go out the window incredibly quickly. 
And part of the progress of innovation is the equally detrimental decay to our basic sense of decency because we live in a fast food microwave society and airports are a big microcosm of that because you know, it's not like National Lampoon's vacation where they just hop in the family station wagon and drive to California when you can just, you know, hop in a plane and fly four to five hours and then you're there in a, less than a day and le less than probably a, a third of a day or a quarter of a day if you're lucky. So it's not like, and you know, this has happened with a lot of things. It's happened with our instantaneous ways of communicating with social media, with cell phones, with all this other stuff. When this kind of stuff happens in our society, we generally just kind of you know, use it to, it's a great thing that is happening, but also it's kind of like, it really wears our patience down. And so it's kind of, you know, the airport is so big because, and it was so huge. And this is why space travel is going to compound this even further, I think, because it's like when you take something and you rapidly accelerate it, then the patience to get that something since it's available more often or it's faster or it's whatever that goes down too. So airports are a big microcosm of that because they've just expedited travel so tremendously over the past couple or the past you know I would I don't know like the 1950s I think was like the or no not the, not the 50s earlier than that anyways so and for me the most traumatic experience in an airport happened in my senior year of high school so as our final vacation together before I parted for college you know I was 18 at the time and my family had saved a lot of time and money to take us to Jamaica because they wanted they they had never been to Jamaica first of all and they uh, we had never really been out of the country we'd been to Canada uh, a couple times for a place that my mom went as a kid and you know she really liked and it was a great place up there but we'd never been to a quote unquote like the tropical island destination my parents had never been the closest thing they'd been to was was Mexico and I think they were getting pushed from particularly I think my brother to kind of go to the tropical island route and so they were like okay let's fuck it let's just go to Jamaica and overall it was wonderful it was an all you know all inclusive resort first time having free and open access to alcohol because I was 18 and you're allowed to drink at 18 in Jamaica attractive women that I thought were way out of my league all that jazz so but Jamaica what they don't tell you about Jamaica is that it's a motherfucker to get to and so, you know, I'm from Ohio originally, so I was still living with my parents at the time. So flying from Ohio to Florida, you then had to transfer onto another plane, go through customs, land on the island, drive a good way to your resort, and then finally unload all the other stuff, which takes a good amount of time in and of itself. And it's a lot of travel, particularly for a family of five with three teenagers, and one of them, which my sister, having a cognitive disability. So my sister Jackie has autism, which is, um, it's gotten a lot of press and, you know, it's the topic of jokes and all this other stuff. So it's gotten a lot of press, especially recently with, especially with the COVID vaccine coming out because there's this whole, the whole, you know, vaccine, anti-vaxxer nonsensory going on. But, um, so Jackie has autism, which is a neurological disorder that prevents the brain from functioning properly and dramatically impairs both learning and social functionality. So it's, you know, in the widespreadness of this disorder is actually quite staggering because, it's more common than childhood cancer, juvenile diabetes, and pediatric AIDS combined with those numbers seemingly going up every year because I remember when um, my, my family's volunteered for Autism Speaks for a long time. I really don't volunteer there anymore because of you know issues I have with the charity. But when we would go to the um, local autism walk, which is the big thing that we did in Cleveland because that's where we're from, um, they would have signs that would say like X amount of children, like one in every however many children. I remember... When I was, you know, growing up, I'd see like one in every 120 children. Then it went down to one in every 100 children. Then it went, went down to one in every, uh, I think it's around like 80 now if I looked last via the research of Autism Speaks. But it's like one in 66 boys are diagnosed with autism or something like that. And again, you know, feel free to check, fact check me on this. But it's actually pretty staggering how many people are getting diagnosed with this thing. And so the problem, I think, why so many diagnoses are happening is for a couple reasons. But primarily... I think it's an impossible problem for our scientific professionals to solve because of its variance in both severity and symptoms. And so, like, for example, what affects my sister, because our brains are functioning so differently, and, you know, we know relatively nothing about how the human brain works and to the degree of the power that it holds and the bandwidth it can carry, etc. So we have a lot of things that are impairing us from getting to the bottom of autism and other neurological disorders from the, our lack of knowledge with the brain, and also because of the way the brain impacts individuals differently. So, for example, what is going to affect my sister's brain will not necessarily affect one of her friend's brains and vice versa. And you can multiply that by however many people are diagnosed with autism every year and the total population in aggregate. So, personally, I don't think we're ever going to solve it. And maybe that's just my inner cynicism coming out. Because I think we're all autistic to, to a degree, to be honest with you. And it's just a matter of how well we function with it and how severely it affects us. Because when you think about... 
autism. Autism is diagnosed in theory as a spectrum. So you can either are a point on a line going from point A to point B. And whether we really don't know whether that point A and point B is, we probably all somewhere are on it in some regard, form, or fashion. Because we're all to a degree somewhat socially awkward. We're all to a degree. We have our quirks. We have this and that. We have brain things that affect us more than they affect other people. So, but that's beside the point. Anyway, back to my sister. So my sister, fortunately, is relatively high functioning, especially when compared with some of her friends. She can hold relatively long conversations. She has a pretty extensive vocabulary. She can do basic math, can get through a chapter book or two, can do household chores and tasks, and has the best memory and typing skills that I've ever seen out of anybody. She can go for hours on a computer just typing up stuff that she has in her head. And, you know, if you tell her things like birthdays or you know, even what we, she remembers what we had for dinner four years and 75 days ago, if you really asked her about it. It's, it's truly incredible. And what a lot of people don't realize on this point is that our special needs brothers and sisters are incredibly talented individuals. And they just don't get a lot of opportunity to showcase that due to both our lack of own knowledge or ignorance, depending on the situation, and preconceived notions and stereotypes. But I would be lying to you if that I said that those stereotypes weren't rooted in at least some form of mild fact, because most st all stereotypes are. One of the reasons that people with autism struggle with societal assimilation is that what they gets them so upset is so different by person, like I mentioned earlier. It affects every person's diagnosed differently. It's not like a typical disease or any condition where there is def a defined set of symptoms like, I don't even know if cancer is this way, but we like it's just the expansion of cells or whatever, with a prescribed methodology of how to fix them. It's completely based on the composition of that individual's brain, and you have to tailor things so specifically towards them that they're at their optimal level of comfort at all times. And my sister is lucky and persistent enough where she can stray from the norm for a good while, but and more than most her kids her age, but even she has her quirks and her breaking points. So primarily, my sister has two ticks that have consistently gotten under her skin since she was born, or at least since I can remember her really, you know, me being cognitively aware of what was going on. So the first is time. And my sister, like a lot of children with autism, this is actually one of the very common things that people with autism and people around the autism community can see. She's a very routine-based person, and she's perhaps the person with the highest level of conscientiousness I've ever met in my life. You know, she loves lists, and she doesn't like when we deviate from the list. She loves schedules, and she hates when we deviate from the schedules. She's so time-bound that everything has to be by the book or she'll start to break down, and we usually have to move everything back a minimum of a half an hour just as a precaution. So when, for example, like when my mom was going to come home from work, she's very attached to my mom so we needed to push everything back like mom's not going to get home at six o'clock when she usually gets home she's going to get home by six thirty. so she was always more than often positively surprised and negatively surprised so the second is crying children which is very much more niche than the other one so my sister has a very deep maternal instinct about her and has had so ever since i can remember she doesn't like to see people who she perceives as innocent suffer which my younger brother whom she is older than fits in that category as do some of my younger cousins and However, most of us know that babies do not cry all the time simply because they're hurt. They simply don't have the brain power to form words on how to express themselves. So they cry to get their parents or caregivers out of their phones or alcohol to pay attention to them. My sister, however, doesn't get that this is a thing, even though we've tried to explain it to her. She only sees the tears and the yelling and the crying. And, in, and tears in her mind obviously mean pain, and it can in a lot of circumstances. But that doesn't mean, especially with dealing with incredibly young children, that it always is that way. So when my sister gets really upset, usually because of one of the two things that I previously mentioned, she usually ends up screaming very loudly and very often. And if it gets bad enough, she'll break down into tears and even start to self-harm, unfortunately, by biting, hitting, or scratching herself or potentially someone else. And it got so bad during our teenage years that we could barely go to restaurants. And when my parents did make us stay so that we could attempt to have a good time, the secondhand embarrassment and shame that was felt by us was nearly unbearable. And I shed more than a few tears during those years, partly because of those two things, but also because I knew that she couldn't help it. And it's never fun when you're on the opposite end of a pointed finger or stare. So that's the context. So back to Jamaica. So when we were on our way home after our flight from Jamaica to Florida, we got announced that our plane back to Ohio had been delayed. And so like Ivan Pavlov's dogs, my conditioned senses immediately perceived trouble. This could not happen. Jackie had to be on time or she might have a meltdown, and this was not good. But Jackie did surprisingly well. Like I said, she's very resilient as a person. We got her on her unhealthy food, one of her favorite things, some music, also one of her favorite things, and got her to calm down. But then our, our flight got delayed again, and then the meltdown began shortly after. So we were nearly six hours off schedule by this point, which was a catastrophic thing to happen to someone as tightly wound as my sister. And barely holding it together, I took my sister to an empty part of the airport terminal where we sat and watched funny YouTube videos together, which calmed her down a bit, but she was still very frazzled. 
and she would burst out with an aggressive scream or repeated phrase every five minutes, but she was relatively stable based on the conditioning of what was happening and how well she was doing relative to the situation. So eventually, the slowest six hours of our lives eventually passed, and we started to board the plane. My sister began to calm down, knowing her seat number and row where everyone else was, and that this was the plane that was going to take her home, and the nightmare, we thought, was over. But then the newborn at the front of the plane started to cry. And this baby wasn't just crying, it was wailing. And this child couldn't have been more than about, I would say, six months old, with the mom doing the best she could to keep herself sane during this horrific excursion, because she was delayed six hours too, and she had a baby to take care of. So that's just, uh, you know, now she was the one being stared at. And this, the one that was making it so hard on everyone else after a long day of the transportation system from hell. But, like always, the baby didn't care, and the baby kept crying. So my sister started to descend back into her meltdown as well. Now that she was in enclosed space crying and yelling and the secondhand embarrassment and shame started to drop like a nuke on my head again because now, you know, people were staring at us and people were looking at me and, you know, they were, you know, making fun of her and all this other stuff. So it all is the feedback loop from hell, to quote Mark Manson, going in my brain. So to keep myself from breaking down, I locked into the one thing other than my sister that was causing it, the woman and the baby in the front of her plane. And now was this fair? Not in the slightest, but I didn't care. I was so wrapped up in my own selfishness that I didn't even attempt to care. So I glared at the front of the plane with the anger of a thousand suns. But eventually, things somehow got worse than the situation was. And this is a reminder that things can always get worse. They can always get worse. The woman, immediately sensing that someone was, something was more wrong than she thought, started to frantically scream for help from the flight attendant. But unfortunately for her, it was too late. And a couple seconds later, the baby vomited all over the mom, soaking her and reeking the whole cabin in stench. And now people were gagging and you know, almost throwing up and getting angry with the mom and the flight attendants. People were literally screaming at this point. And it was nearly 11 o'clock at night. My sister was despondent. The poor mom, past her wit's end, completely broke down, crying exhausted and tired tears into her child's puke and her own shame. And along with everyone else in the plane, it seemed, I finally broke. And I began muttering words and obscenities of the situation at the mom, the kid, my sister, everything. I had had it. This wasn't supposed to happen. It couldn't happen to us. Like, like I said, none of it I could control, but I mistakenly thought I could judge. And, you know, thankfully, that was where my mom threw down the hammer. So my mom, like the awesome person she is, had remained remarkably calm throughout the whole ordeal from the beginning to end. As someone who grew up in chaos in and around her family, she knew how to handle it quite well, particularly when transitioning into her adult life with my sister. She knows how to handle my sister along with my dad better than anyone I've ever seen. And as soon as that, as the 15 seconds of rage came out of my mouth, she put the kibosh on it as soon as possible. And she immediately confronted me and told me to buck up and that I shouldn't be acting like an immature asshole. And the excuses immediately started pouring out of my mouth, crying kid, baby, delayed flights, bad airline food, I'm tired, me being a bitch, etc. Then my mom dispelled it with one question. So who do you think feels worse, she said, you or the woman at the front of the plane? And the answer was so obvious that even more shame piled on me for indirectly making my mom ask the question. Because of course the woman at the front of the plane was feeling worse. What was I to complain for at all? For being slightly uncomfortable? For feeling somewhat embarrassed? This woman had all those things in an 11 out of 10, and here she, I was trying to exacerbate it to make myself feel better. So after that shame subsided, I was hit with an epiphany about the situation. I didn't know it at the time, but my emotional paradigm had shifted. That moment in my personal history showed me, from my mother's example, what true empathy meant. And empathy is a term that gets thrown around a lot in our culture, but I really don't think we have a great grasp on what it truly means. And I don't. So I really didn't until I think, was thinking about that incident and wanted to know more about how and what I felt. Now, however, after studying it, I feel like true empathy is something that we can all get better at as a culture. And it's a virtue that we should hold in high regard and avoid demeaning it with lesser words that can dilute its true value. A greater societal empathy will pay dividends down the line. And if there's one word that our world could use right now, it would be empathy. So, you know, fuck be kind, be empathetic is the real movement we should be pushing because being kind, quote unquote, is arbitrary and meaningless. Being empathetic is hard and meaningful. If we alter ourselves toward meaning, as we always should, then empathy should be the proper path for all of us to travel down. In a discussion of empathy, we need to hit on some key points. So first, we need to discuss what empathy is and what it isn't. Then we need to see how our culture doesn't push empathy as much as we should, and conversely, attempt to take active steps to counteract and improve upon those failures. So hopefully the next time you go into our, one of our beloved transportation systems from hell, you can be a little bit of an, less of an asshole, which is me. Use me as the point where you should not be in this situation. So to begin our discussion of empathy, a topic surrounded by a lot of bullshit and fluff, it's always good to derive from an expert. And in my opinion, Brene Brown fits that bill of the expert. 
A modern cult hero for Instagram models and teen moms alike, Brown's talk about human emotions have inspired a lot of people to think introspectively about how they can handle, handle life's everyday trials and tribulations. While a bit too bullshitty and fluffy for my taste, I do believe that Brown's perspective on a myriad issues is very valid, if you can read any of her books, and I think her books are very good. So, the ones that I believe are most valid come into play when discussing our relationships with both one another and ourselves. Because Brown's claim to, claim to fame is her research on shame and vulnerability, which have helped propel her to the thought leadership's superstardom, particularly among the female gender. However, Brown is more than just a researcher on two of humanity's complex emotions. She is an emotional Yoda, ability to bob and weave throughout our emotional states with incredible diligence and efficiency. Watch Yoda in any lightsaber fight he's ever been in, for examples of how Brene Brown is good at this. Um, so, in short, I trust when she has an opinion on true definition of what empathy can and should mean. However, what I did not expect was the path that she chose to explain it, and I'm glad she did, because I think this is a singular distinction that will clear a lot of people's minds as to what the word actually means. So, Brown decides to decided to define empathy by comparing it to its distant cousin, sympathy. And while they both have similarities, such as their ties to feeling the emotions of another person and the same spelling but the first couple of letters, to be quite frank, they are distinctly different. And so here's Brown making that decision, quote, Empathy fuels connection, sympathy drives disconnection, end quote. This can seem counterintuitive, and it sure did to me when I first read it, because I thought that both of these emotions generally had a positive connotation, at least involving the human being who is feeling something for the human being. But in thinking about it, it makes all the sense in the world. To further explain the point before I make mine, here is another passage from Brown on the subject. So, quote, Empathy is a skill that can bring people together and make people feel included, while sympathy creates an uneven power dynamic and can lead to more isolation and disconnection. It's an unfortunate outcome given that sympathy is usually coming from a good place, end quote. So now, now let me whip out my ex-girlfriend who keeps crawling back to me, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The definition of the word empathy is, quote, the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experiences of another of either the past or present without having the feelings, thoughts, and experience fully communicated in an objectively explicit manner. The definition of the word sympathy, by contrast, is, quote, an affinity, association, or relationship between persons or things wherein whatever affects one similarly affects the other, end quote. So, that's a lot of word vomit. So, what does it all mean? To understand this, pun intended, we need to bridge the gap between Brown's definitions and insights and the concrete definitions of the words themselves. So, Let's stick with the actual definitions first, and then we can segue into the derivatives of those definitions that Brown gets into from her research and her, you know, just general, you know, intellectual badassery. So, the key distinction that I want to draw attention to is the phrase objectively explicit in the definition of empathy and the phrase affinity, association, or relationship in the definition of sympathy. The distinction between these two phrases is important because one stresses detachment while the other stresses attachment. In the definition of empathy, there is a clear line drawn in the sand that you are dissociating yourself from that person while still allowing yourself to experience what they are experiencing. In sympathy, there is a clear relationship between being built with you, your feeling attached to that person or cause. However, with sympathy, there is no attempt to make to, made to experience. There is only an attempt made to be attached to. In aggregate, this is a fine thing. People feel sympathy towards a lot of, a, a lot of causes. They should. It's natural to want to have that relationship with certain causes. But I would argue that only through detachment can you actively attempt to help a cause or person. Because when you detach for something, you can see the situation objectively. This is why self-esteem is bullshit, and I've written a whole post on this, so again, don't read this blog.com. The reason why, in both cases, is that it is a slippery slope toward the dreaded state of narcissism. Because instead of seeing some, someone else and their issues for what they are, you indirectly make them about you. What you can do to help. What your stake in the problem is. The other person's thrown by the wayside, albeit indirectly. I'm sure most people who feel sympathetic don't mean for this to happen in most cases, but it's an unfortunate and undesirable after-effect nonetheless. Which brings us back to Dr. Brown. So Brown, surprisingly to some, including myself, states the opposite of what the definitions say. According to Brown, empathy leads to greater attachment connection, while sympathy actually distances you from it. The more we work on both sides to achieve the same outcome, we could actually be worsening it, depending on what path we take. And so this is an incredibly paradoxical situation and one that highly confused me at first. Because how could two people that are very credible, Brene Brown and the fucking dictionary, have two seemingly complete opposite definitions of what two words mean? And as I struggled with this, it finally clicked. They're both right. 
So like most things in our society, proper nuance is needed in order to fully comprehend something as complicated as this. Those who fail to do so only can get pulled into the mire of absolutism, and we know only Sith deal in those. And no one, not even Anakin Skywalker, truly like being a Sith. Well, you know, the Emperor may have, but he's a special breed of sadistic fuck, so we'll treat him as the outlier in the situation here. So, back to this. The reality of the quote-unquote both sides are right story is this. In my estimation, I believe that one of these sides leads to the other side, which therefore allows them both to be right. In the case of these two specific sides, I believe that the definitions, the core asset, leads to the interpretation of the definitions, the derivative that Brown elaborates on. And this makes absolute sense in theory. 2 plus 2 equals 4. So it makes sense to deal with the, first, with the core asset first because before we go into the derivative. The core asset is that you need to be attached, as we examined earlier. But then, Brown argues that through em embodying empathy, i.e. detachment, we eventually get closer to something. We can eventually feel something more. One is simply a conduit to the other. We must close one door in order to open another. To explain this, let me draw on the two examples in my intro, a good a general example involving my sister and the specific answer with my mom on the plane. So, when my sister starts to become upset in a restaurant, there are generally two demographics of reactions, the starers and the non-starers. The starers far outnumber the non-starers, simply because we as humans are attracted to non-normal behavior in a typically normal setting. The starers, you could say, are forming an impromptu relationship with my family by becoming personally attached to the situation, which happens to be my sister's becoming upset. But something happens throughout this process. The embarrassment and the shame. Even though most of the people mean well, although there are some assholes that do not believe me, they are not attempting to let us go about our business and solve our own problems. They are looking at us com from a completely separated point of view. They could not imagine being in that position, most likely, unless they have a child with a cognitive disability. The non-starers, however, are different. They simply don't care, or at least give us the families and decency like our or families like ours the decency of pretending that they don't. They let us go about our business, and we go about that, and we let them go about theirs. There is no attachment there. They do not invest any amount of energy or time in our affairs simply because they are more focused on having a good meal with their families. You can guess which one was we prefer more. Like your parents told you when you were younger, it isn't polite to stare. When people do not pay us attention, when people do not get involved, they become people who we begin to see truly accept us. They obviously know what's going on, yet they choose to let us be ourselves. They might not be involved in our situation directly, but they most definitely can see what's going on from afar. They aren't looking down and pitying us. They're simply seeing us for who we are and then making an attempt to treat us as an equal by allowing us to go about our business and solve our own problems. And the reason that the starers don't give off this vibe is because they act like they are personally involved by staring at us, but they really don't want to, nor can they, do anything about it. They are just staring to feel like they are involved when it is really not their place to be involved at all. They condescend, most likely unwillingly, by making us as different and as quote-unquote the other. Anyone who has had this happen to them in a public place has had this feeling happen to them before who knows this feeling. It can happen to any identity group, whether that person's a rainbow, non-binary, pansexual to a straight white male. It all depends on the context and environment of the situation. Which leads me back to the scenario of the woman on the plane. So my mom, in all of her great behavior, was practicing empathy. I, in my immaturity and selfishness, was practicing th sympathy. I personally involved myself in the situation, to the point where I let the actions of someone actually upset me to the point of blatant outburst. My mom, on the other hand, detached herself from the situation. Did she feel bad for the woman? Of course she did. But she did not condescend to her. She simply felt her presence and then tried her best not to make her feel worse. Because it turns out, detachment from the situation leads to attachment that those too involved in someone else's shit don't understand. Translation. It's an antidote to narcissism, one of the worst vices you can inhibit. You indirectly but full well make it all about you, and don't give that person an opportunity to fix themselves or go about their business. It is through this process of not getting involved that you, that you gain that, quote, objective perception that the, the definition was talking about. Looking at things from a clear and objective lens is the correct way to go about any situation, but especially when dealing with other humans and the behaviors and emotions that come with them. Because in truth, you don't have to know what a person is going through. You don't. But you should always make an attempt to understand what a person is going through. Think about it in any other context. You don't need to know how Einstein developed the theory of relativity. But you, if you go into physics, you sure as shit better understand the theory of relativity. You don't have to be as deep as Carl Jung to know how he developed the theory of the Jungian shadow. But if you go into psychology, you sure as shit better understand the Jungian shadow. You don't need to know how Kanye West got sarcophagus to rhyme with esophagus in one two-bar rhyme. But you sure as shit better understand that it's one of the most incredible things ever done in modern art. So no, you don't need to know specifically what a person is going through. 
but you should always make the attempt to compartmentalize your emotions and understand what the person is going through. Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable one, to use one last quote from Brene Brown. It takes a lot from a person to get to the core of another person, first by detachment, and then by analysis of your objective understanding of that specific situation. The distinction between empathy and sympathy is a complicated one and to make and draw attention to, but it can be done. What's harder, however, is to actively put into practice our actions toward each of the two sides of the coin. A good place to start navigating that divergence comes from the title of this blog and seeing how we directly don't use empathy. So, as you may have noticed, the trend in my writing is to learning what to not do before you can charge ahead. For example, it's much easier for Biggie Smalls to tell you to never sell no crack where, you, crack where you rest at than to get busted by the feds for doing so. That's the 10 crack commandments. You should know them. Particularly, not that you should be selling crack anyway, but if you do, my suggestion is the only Christopher you listen to is Wallace. And that's Biggie Smalls' name for um, people who don't. And the, to the people that do, his documentary is coming out on Netflix on March 1st. I suggest you all watch it. It's He's incredible. He's the GOAT, so watch it. So empathy is one of those things as well, even though it's not like crack, it's an emotion, but it's the same thing, anyway, in some fucked up sense. Before I did the analysis and research that provided the framework for the previous section, I knew little about just how big of a role empathy plays and just how easy it is to screw up. The connection between empathy and sympathy, as articulated by Dr. Brown in the definitions of my ex-girlfriend the dictionary, provide a prime example of why you should never judge a book by its cover. Not only is empathy hard to come by, as we've seen from examining its true nature, it's even harder to get ourselves to function with it properly. Too many times, and I'm most certainly included in this, have people and have people had to feign empathy for something else simply because I either didn't want, n didn't know what it was, or it was more conveniently for me not to do so. This is a wrong decision, and is always a wrong decision to make, particularly dealing with the emotions of other human beings. Treat others how would you like to be, how you would like to be treated, and all that. It's very easy to fall into the false empathy trap, and there is one key component that I harped on in the previous section that, I could that could be proved to be the catalyst with every example going forward. Narcissism. Think about it before you act out or emote it. Are you being a selfish asshole? Are you making this about you? Is this a plea to your wokeness to make you feel more virtuous in a situation where virtue is not nearly anything that is called for? If you answered a yes to, or maybe even a maybe to those, check yourself before you wreck yourself, like Ice Cube says. Take a step back and reassess the situation. Because there are many situations, nearly all of them that could be named when dealing with human reactions in these type of settings that could employ this. And from my own personal understanding of these concepts, there are three primary ways in which enable these falsely empathetic reactions within ourselves whenever we encounter them. In order to defeat false empathy and go with a real empathy instead, we must dissect them one by one to develop a better contextual awareness to get on the right path. And the easiest misstep in the discovery of empathy is when we generally assume too much before we genuinely know what is going on. Remember, assuming just makes an ass out of you and me, to follow the old saying. This is not empathy. This is its cousin, sympathy. Sympathy is the one that does the assumptions. Sympathy is when you automatically course-correct your behavior around the behavior of another in order to forge a connection. And, as we all should know by now, this is not the correct path to take. Because only through detachment from a situation will we potentially create an avenue that leads us away from it. The reason for this is that our personal involvement skews our perception, health, hence the selfish asshole commentary I made earlier. Any involvement to get a, pers a personal stake in the feelings of another person is and should always be an automatic red flag that you need to spot immediately. The assumption of the situation corresponds to automatically throwing your hat in the ring for something that you most likely have no business being in in the first place. When you create a storyline with your own head, that is not the objective way that is story that is happening in front of you. It could be, but you can never be sure. And this is narcissism. It is your story that you're telling yourself. You have no idea the context of the situation or anything going on around it. You're simply inserting yourself into the equation like, once again, a selfish asshole. For example, the situation I explained with my sister is an all-too-common reference point of this. When my sister starts having a fit, the last thing that I want is people to get involved. This is a family matter, and it should be that way. It's unfortunate that it's happening in a very public place where you get to interrupt family and friends' time of others, but autism and disabilities are unfortunate things. And as the awareness of vernacular of these disorders becomes more and more commonplace, people should generally be more aware of these things than they have in the past. And to their credit, I believe they are for the most part. However, it's very hard to get people who are removed from the disability spectrum, even slightly, to, to deploy proper empathy in these situations. They are such a hands-on type of situation that it can be incredibly difficult to educate people on the proper way that they can behave in order to foster a supportive environment, regardless of whether they're even aware to the cause or not. 
Oddly enough, I try to explain to people that these situations are a lot like politics. Because most people, and most people in my community who, when related to this example, just want to be left the fuck alone. No one wants you to get up in their shit giving you their opinions or their sympathy on anything. They just want to live their lives, go about their business, and do their things. Anything that tries to get in the way of that is likely to be seen as an annoyance at best and a threat at worst. The victim mentality is something that, you should, that should be avoided at all costs. What is even worse is when you victimize someone else. I have a large problem with this in a wide variety of areas, but particularly in this area. If people do not ask for sympathy, as those, all those who are not afflicted with toxic victimhood should, you are, in a, you are not in a position to give it. Remember your smallness. You're not better than anyone simply because you have an opinion. I learned that on that fateful airplane ride. It's where a lot of people go wrong when trying to deploy their empathy capital. Their hearts are in the right place, but unfortunately, they end up having more of an adverse effect than a positive one in most cases. So second, and generally what comes after this step, is our refusal to listen. For example, let's say some, we see someone in a troublesome situation, we go over to see what's the matter. They tell us, give us a sob story, start rambling on about how much that sob story sucks and how shitty the ending is. But before they can get to the ending, we say something along the lines of this. Okay, here's what you should do. And that's wrong. Okay, that's very, very wrong. You completely cut them out at the knees before they can even finish talking. You don't even give them a chance to allow you to deploy em display empathy towards them. You become, yet again, a narcissistic asshole. This is a common thing that people do called, quote-unquote, fixing people. And I should know, because I really started before I really started working on myself, I was the worst person I knew at this. And as a person that's also high in conscientiousness, I'm a big fan of order. And as the son of a mechanical engineer and a physical therapist, I'm a problem solver by genome, basically. And as a result, I became the biggest narcissistic asshole of anyone I knew. I only wanted to fix people, but I never wanted to truly empathize with people. I had a lot of sympathy, but not a lot of empathy. I inserted myself in the conversations far before it was remotely appropriate to do so. And many people do this as well. It's very easy to do because a lot of people want to help. But there's a question that we all have to ask. Do we even know what the person problem that you are trying to help solve is? Most likely, the answer is no, because of the whole narcissistic assholeness getting in the way. In order to properly provide empathy, you must disconnect first. When you connect yourself to a problem by automatically offering a microwave solution to a problem that you have no knowledge of, this is far from an applicable strategy. Most importantly, it's an insensitive strategy, no matter how much you want to frame it. Because the truth is, most people don't need to be fixed. They don't. Like I said earlier, they just want to go about their lives. They don't want your help, input, or suggestions. They really don't. In my situation, if someone told me they needed to quote-unquote fix my sister, they would likely have to deal with the problem of quote-unquote fixing their jaw that just got broken by my fist about five seconds after they uttered that sentence. Because people are not objects. We may be broken in more ways than one and we need some type of healing, but we cannot be fixed by other people. We can only fix ourselves and the people that we trust to truly empathize with us. Remember, the non-tyrannical collective begins the non-tyrannical self. The empowerment of the individual is the most likely way out of any adverse situation involving your emotional complex. The disempowerment of that individual by some way is selfish of attempting to fix them takes it behind the barn and shoot it. And this is the one situation where I actively tell you to not embody Mr. Wonderful. Finally, do not, and I repeat, do not make yourself the center of attention. Actually, this might be the best one out of the three simply because you're deliberately not hiding your narcissism and your narcissistic assholeness. You're chucking the mask off Jim Carrey style into the audience and openly declaring yourself a person that cannot be trusted with another person's feelings. And I actually kind of respect that type of honesty from a lot of people. But the other kind of thing, but the other kind of things that is that you're still you're still being a dick because you are, even though you might take it at the face of a kind at the face of kindness. And I would never roast any of you if I wouldn't first roast myself, at least most of the time. Too many times in my life I've tried to say, when, quote unquote, when X happened to me or when I was going through Y or some other parable that the person you're attempting, again, a questionable attempt, to help doesn't give a flying fuck about. And they shouldn't because yet again, it's not about you. This is not your problem. It is their problem. It's their problem. And they have to be the one that fixes it. This is not saying you cannot be of help along the way and more on this later. But it's demeaning and insulting of the other person to so casually throw their situation in the wayside in favor of yours. Not only does it disregard the person's capacity for feeling emotions in their particular circumstance, it steamrolls it with the bullshit that you feel is more important in the moment. In a situation such as this, the last thing that the person you are, maybe, attempting to help cares about are your experiences and your situations that you've been through. Maybe after for context, but certainly not when they're in the thick of it. 
I'm pretty sure I would have been the one socked in the face if I went up to my mom on the plane and lectured her about my life story. And I would have deserved every inch of the surface area of that mom's callous fist. Whenever you should be make it, you try to make it about yourself when helping another person, that should be an immediate 15-yard penalty for narcissistic assholeness with a loss of down thrown in for good measure. It's not about you. This is what our ruling class and mob does not get. People like to be heard and seen for what their problems are, not what people assume or force on them. This concept is especially important at the individual level, where ideas are compounded in reverse fashion due to all the focus playing straight down onto them. However, you do not have to be a narcissistic asshole, contrary to popular belief, and I suggest you don't. There are ways in which we can improve upon our actual displays of empathy. We should actively pursue them, as they contribute to our, that all-desired non-tyrannical collective that we spent so much time talking about over the course of this blog and podcast. How you get from point A to point B matters, and doing so correctly in terms of empathy is what we'll have to go through next. So, on May 21st, 2005, American literary titan David Foster Wallace was pegged to give a commencement speech at a liberal arts university named Kenyon College in rural Ohio. A prestigious yet small university, Wallace beat out 10 to 12 other nominees, including then-Senator Hillary Clinton and astronaut and politician and Ohio legend John Glenn. Wallace, like most literary geniuses, was constantly and awkwardly working up on the speech until he walked out on the podium. So in what would become known as the famous This Is Water speech, Wallace argued passionately that the value of an education was not to get a job or, or pursue graduate school. Wallace said that the value of an education, particularly one that took place in the liberal, art, the liberal arts realm, was to teach you how to perceive others. Wallace told parable after parable of the general depression and malaise of adult life, ranging from seeing an overweight woman at the grocery store getting screamed at by her child to someone cutting you off on the highway. We slave ourselves away at work every day just to come home for maybe three cognizant hours of nothing just to wake up and do it all over again the next day. And for what? We sleep through the rest of our lives, argues Wallace. Or at least most of us do, if we're honest and raw enough to admit it. But we also don't have to succumb. The cure for the general boringness and mundane attitude of life can be yours. It's not that complicated, really. There's a way to break the cycle, to craft the path out of the general bludgeoning of your miserable day-to-day -day existence. It is to take notice. It is to make sure that you don't go through life, particularly your non-work life, sleepwalking. It is to be, it is to heed the overarching theme of this is water and to do the exact opposite. It is to practice empathy. And what has become known as the greatest, one of the great speeches of the past 100 years and potentially ever, Wallace argues that the antidote to the blandness of life and the suffering of our self-confinement is to empathize with people, to not just let them fade into the background where you eventually become bitter and resentful towards their existence while simultaneously hating yours. No. What your goal should be, instead, is to take in all of your surroundings as they are, whether you like them or not. When you invite the suffering of others, even if it's not ideal to you, into your life, only then can you allow yourself to become empathetic. You should not become attached to their suffering, which is sympathy, but rather simply observe it and do your best to account for it. And how you do this emotional and spiritual accounting is through empathy. In your use of empathy, you can create relationships with the world around you instead of drowning it. Empathy is active. It requires you to be involved with things, albeit at a distance where you're not directly interfering with the individual capacity of people to fix their own problems. It is important to take active steps to improve the skill as we've seen. But how? And the first thing is exactly what Wallace was talking about in his named examples. Assume nothing. Assuming, if you remember, simply makes an ass out of you and me. We should be careful not to do it. But why? Because when you do, we automatically, although most likely unintentionally, Assert ourselves as the voice of reason and the superior person within the conversation simply because we think we know more than we actually do. In other words, we become nothing more than a woke mobster, consistently shouting our virtue at everyone. Mobs can become misguided, after all. You can break a lot of things when you aren't consciously aware of what's at stake. See every example of a mob for the past like, year or so. Instead, after your detachment is done, the proper step, and the step that Wallace suggests, is to take every situation anew from the ground up. So what do we mean by this? Well, it simply means what I've talked about a lot in this post and what I will continue to stress in nearly every single one. Do not treat an individual as anything else but an individual. And I mean anything else. Not as some part of an identity group. Not as some sort of occupational hazard. Not as any sort of weaponization of some misguided form or whatever the fuck you think a person is. That is nothing more than demonizing them as something they could or could not be, and both are dangerous. So let's go back to the one of the Wallace examples. 
Say some guy cuts you off on the highway. You automatically assume this person is Satan and you see them in a giant truck with the pipes coming out and shit and they probably get like like negative six miles to the gallon and belching out, you know, climate killing shit and you're just thinking this person is just, just, the, just the worst and just the absolute worst. And the truth is you could be right. This person could be the absolute worst. But do you know for sure? You do not. You simply become attached to the situation, become sympathetic to it, most likely to your own feelings, and then go on a rampage of how awful this person is. But you have failed to take the situation anew, check your fast brain, and ask yourself some questions. Why was this person hurrying? What could be so important that he had to swerve in front of me like some Satan-esque person would? Maybe his daughter got hit in the head at softball practice and he has to take her to the emergency room. Maybe his wife decided to spew out their newborn child at her workplace. Maybe he's the real-life Liam Neeson and Taken and has to save his son from getting sexually trafficked into an all-female sex ring. But the point is that none of these things are relevant. None of them. The only thing that is relevant is that the scenarios could be either all of these or none of these. Again, you don't know what you don't know. So, in this case, what needs to be done is to assume nothing and to take every situation and treat it just how like you would a person, as an individual. Therefore, through your detachment by not associating any bias to it, you avoid skewing your perception to fit the mold of something that may or not be what is actually may or may not be what is actually occurring in the specific situation. Translation: You become empathetic, not just towards the people involved, but the scenario as a whole. The bigger is always the better in the situations involving empathy. Additionally, in, in order to allow empathy to flow properly, detachment must be the first step. So, a natural good sign of things, particularly with people you are close with, is to let the person that is experiencing the bad situation come to you. If they are the one having the individual experience, they should be the ones to voice their concern about it, not you. You can observe and display empathy, but the more empathy you build when you first detach from a situation to allow them to solve it themselves. But, if they cannot, you should feel obligated to display empathy when the person comes to you for help. I view empathy a lot like I view good therapists. Good therapists really don't talk all that much. They're able to detach so much from their clients that their clients eventually just slash their hearts and minds open and bleed all over their carpet. And the therapist simply has to show up with a mop and a squeegee and clean the shit up off the floor. They know that it's not their job to fix people, as we went over in prior sections. They know that their job, truly, is to let people fix themselves. They are merely a vessel, a conduit into greater self-reflection and observation. They leave it completely up to the patients whether they want to get better. If they don't, that's fine. Their slot will just open up for another hour and someone in this mentally unhealthy country will inevitably take their place. They change clients more often than they change their socks in a lot of cases. You cannot force a square peg into a round hole, much like you can't force someone to divulge everything about their particular emotional dilemma, at least not ethically. Sometimes patience is the best game to play. Much as you cannot force that square peg into a round hole, you cannot force your own virtue and ignorance onto a person and expect it to go well or as you have planned. In all likelihood, the opposite will happen, and you'll be left holding the bag with something that you have no hope of understanding. Because you don't have to be a licensed therapist to do this approach, but therapists are generally wise people to learn from. They're able to take very fucked up people in situations and get them to open themselves up. Because through their process of deliberate detachment from the situation of their clients, they get them to first fix and help themselves, and then they simply come in to clean up the inevitable puddle that they will all end up becoming. They let their clients simply lay, lay the ball up before they throw down the dunk. And most people think that dunking the ball is more fun anyway. It's much better to put the finishing touches on something than it is to try to set up the play. It's why wide receivers get glorified so much. When they finish plays, they finish them big. And just ask, Odell Beckham's on my team. So, I mean, like, there's nobody bigger than that. And it's the reason that Zion Williamson went from a high school athlete who was a lackluster overall player to the most marketable basketball commodity in probably more than a decade. They don't have to have the ball or control all the time. They simply just know how to take a situation that's given to them and make the most out of it. And this is what empathy is all about, really. Empathy is when you are able to communicate with a person without knowing specifically what they're going through. You're able to get to the core of the person and provide aid without prying into their shit. You give them the opportunity to fix themselves or shit themselves and leave them to pick up the pieces. In either way, it's a good thing. You can be here to guide them out of that scenario and make time to practice what is right for them. It's a win-win for everyone involved. Finally, when you open this door of letting them come to you, you must be very cognizant of your attention and to whom you give it, because in a truly empathetic situation, you must be giving all your attention to that person after you detach. This might seem counterintuitive, but I would then ask you to remember the definition. Your empathy is merely a pathway, remember? After you detach, you can then allow them and their emotions to flow enough where you can make a difference in how you handle and treat that person. 
The attention that you give that person when you're speaking with should be 100% focused on them. You cannot get your emotions involved with this person at all. The sympathy you feel cannot afford to get in the way of your empathy capital that you want to deploy with that person in that situation. However, this does not mean you should shut your off, off your emotions in aggregate. This is not the correct approach at all. And I'm a fan of a lot of ten tenets of the Stoic philosophy, but the detachment from all emotions is an incorrect one to make, which the Stoics thought was right, and I don't think it's right at all. The reason is that, like it or not, all of the things that we do in life are emotionally driven. All of them. A lot of my conservative readers who want to say facts don't care about your feelings can disagree all with what they want, but all of them will be very wrong. Psychology has proven that, time and time again, emotions determine everything, from our values to the way we perceive the entire world that we grow up in. Emotions lay the foundation for our logical center, and the ways in which we incorporate that logical center in order to craft a narrative and how to exist in the world. It wouldn't be a mistake to turn them off, but it would be suicide to turn them off. Instead, we must go the non-Stoic route. You must feel your emotions. It is not an option to turn them off like a light switch, because to do so is an impossibility. What you need to do instead is feel your emotions, all of your emotions, and then act in spite of them in order to provide your best empathy through proper detachment. Only then can the attention in the situation be placed properly on the person you are trying to help. Feel your emotions, but don't let them cloud your judgment. If you do, empathy will flow naturally. Final translation, you will not be a narcissistic asshole, which is obviously a desirable outcome. So in the end, the proper deployment of empathy is one of the most powerful tools in our emotional arsenal. However, it is also one of the most misunderstood. Because only through proper detachment of circumstance and situation can we display the common decency needed throughout our emotional ties with other people. After detachment, we can open the floodgates for powerful relationship building to begin. When that happens, empathy can foster. And the lesser emotions of sympathy in others can be thrown to the wayside for that purpose of a greater emotion. Whether it's a screaming child at the supermarket, a special needs child at your favorite restaurant, or a mom on an airplane, finding time for proper displays of empathy is always a good way to show a higher state of emotional intelligence. We need it in our society, now more than ever. If you aren't good at it now, that's okay. You can get better. And in my opinion, there's always a golden rule that you can follow. Don't be a narcissistic asshole. So... That's my spiel about it. So I think empathy is really important. I've done a lot of research into it. I suggest you do a lot of it as well. And uh, thank you guys again. Great job listening to, or not great job, I guess, but you know, thank you for listening to the podcast. I really do appreciate, you know, I'm seeing some of the analytics on my anchor channel and all of them are going up. So again, can you dig it? I can. Own the day. Open your mind. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? <laughs>